Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. I thought it would be a lot easier to find snow up here. My house is covered in snow, but up here over on the west side, you guys don't have as much. Um, I hope you all got here safely. Uh, I'm, I'm about done with snow, uh, to be honest. I keep looking at my watch because it's got a calendar on it. It says it's March 12th. I'm tired of getting hit with snowstorms. <laughs> well, folks, let's pray. Holy God, living water, wash us, renew our spirits, and send your word. Amen. One of the most important things that I ever did in my life was to participate in the New Sanctuary Movement. This is this movement of providing refuge for immigrants inside churches. This really started, well, a thousand years ago with the Templars, providing sanctuary to wanderers. But in our modern age, it started again in the 1980s, during the Reagan administration. And they were coming after Central American, who, Central American people who were in America uh, without the right papers and uh, who had been threatened with deportation back to Central America and South America. And it was a primarily Roman Catholic movement. The Roman Catholics were deeply concerned with what was going on in Central and South America. First of all, because those people are predominantly Roman Catholic. Second of all, because they had a lot of Roman Catholic clergy who had been brutalized in Central and South America, many of them killed, many more imprisoned. Uh, and thirdly, because those regimes, those Contras, those groups of uh, rebel soldiers, a lot of them were funded by the United States government. So the Roman Catholics said, enough. If we can't get you to stop doing what you're doing down there, at least we can get you not to throw people back into that lion's den. And so they would bring folks into their church and they would have them stay in the church. The Roman Catholic priests and the nuns would say to the uh, immigration agents, if you want to arrest these people, well, you're going to have to do it in front of the cross of Jesus Christ. Live with that. So they didn't. Later on, ICE made it a policy. Uh, ICE came, Immigration and Customs Enforcement came later after the creation of the Department of Homeland Security to not do deportations in places like churches and temples, mosques, synagogues, places of faith. Uh, very bad press. Uh, they learned that in the 80s because they did actually do some deportations in those churches. They raided a few of those churches in the late 80s put those priests in handcuffs and marched them out in front of a judge. And uh, 201, the judges all said, what are you doing? Put these priests back in their churches and don't do this again. And so when ICE was created, they made this policy and said, don't arrest people inside churches. It's a bad look. So there's a policy. It's not a law. It's not a thing on the books, really. It's just a, more or less a tradition to not do deportations in churches. And so then it happened uh, during a, a previous administration, starting in 2016, uh, they started rounding up um, so-called illegal immigrants. Now that's a really broad term, illegal immigrant. Um, it doesn't really have uh, any legal basis. 
technically, technically speaking, anyone standing on U.S. soil is protected by the United States Constitution. Um, that's because our rights come from God, not the government. If our rights came from the government, then you would need the government's approval to be uh, in the United States. Uh, but they didn't set things up that way. And so there's a lot of tricky business around immigration. A lot of forms you gotta fill out, a lot of lines that you gotta get in, and it costs a lot of money. And if you're ever found to be here in America without having filled out the right forms, you can never become a citizen. You gotta go, and you can't come back. That's the important part. Okay, well, they said, round up all the folks that don't have the right papers and ship them out. And now the men and women whose job it was to find these folks, round them up and ship them out, they're just like you and me. They're not, uh, they probably didn't sign up to do that, but they knew that they had to get the job done. And so they went for the easiest targets. They went for the elderly, that was the first group of people. They went for people who had children, because if you've got little kids, you're not gonna run away. Uh, and they went for people who owned houses, because if you own a house, you're really easy to find. And so they started getting these people together and shipping them out. And uh, there was a great deal of frustration. That's a polite word to use. And the church I served at the time said, we got a lot of immigrants in our town. And they said, uh, I said to them, don't worry. There hasn't been an ICE agent in our town ever. We don't even have an immigration office in our town. And they said, well, what happens if they're gonna, if they're gonna try to boot somebody out? And I said, well, I, I don't know. What do you think should happen? And that started a really important conversation. Now, that church I served was not particularly liberal at all. Uh, they were middle of the road, I'd say. And by that, just I mean they were diverse. I mean, there were some wild-haired communists in worship. But there was also a lot of good rock-ribbed Republicans, too. Uh, Eisenhower types. Anyway. They got together and they talked. And I said, okay, well, we wanna help these folks, but we don't really know a whole lot about them. Uh, let's put some parameters in place. We'll help somebody, but we don't wanna help somebody if they're not from our community. Uh, we don't want people coming here from you know, far away looking for help. And we're not gonna help them if, you know, if, if they're young enough or whatever, they can make it on their own in their own country. And uh, so they, they made up a list of stuff. Oh, no criminals. And then I said, well, what's a criminal? That's a complicated term. It took them about a month to figure that out. And they, they came up with a list. It's actually the FBI's list. It's, I think it's called Class A Felons. It includes everything from you know, murderers on down to grand theft. Anybody done that stuff? No, we're not helping you. You go back to whatever country you're from. But if you've got a parking ticket, you can stay. <laughs> it was a fascinating conversation. And as their pastor, I supported them in having this conversation. But in the back of my head, I was thinking, this is wonderful education, but this is never going to actually happen. There's no way. Not in a town like Kalamazoo. We have 65,000 people in this town. And then I got a phone call from a lawyer. He said, there's an elderly woman in your town. She's lived there for 20 years. She has brain cancer. Her daughter died last year. She's never been late on a payment. She's paid her taxes every year. Um, she's a model citizen. 
he said there's about zero chance they're going to try to deport her. But if they do, I just wanted to let you know. Her name is Sahida. And I said, well, I'll, let's, I'll meet her. And I went and I met with her. And she was perfectly sweet, uh, adorable. She was Pakistani originally, but she really lived in Kuwait and America for most of her life. Didn't make much of a difference because she stuffed me full of cookies and dates and sweets every time I sat with her. Gained about 10 pounds the first time we met. And I got to know her really well. And so it was that I was in the room when the immigration agent said, pack your bags. You need to be in the Chicago O'Hare airport on Monday morning because we're deporting you to Pakistan. By the way, you have to pay for your ticket. That was on a Friday. And by that Monday morning, we'd moved her into the church. Into my office, actually, because it had a private bathroom and I wasn't really using it much anyway. Here's a couple of things I didn't know. I didn't know that if she was sent back to Pakistan, she would be killed. There was a blood price on her head. The reason there was a blood price on her head was because of the death of her daughter. You see, Sahida was from a tribe in this part of Pakistan that believed that mothers had a responsibility to offer their daughters in marriage to a mo another member of the tribe. It was their mother's responsibility to, to get them to that age. And uh, instead of sending her daughter back to Pakistan to be married when she turned 16, Sahida chose to keep her daughter in America so that she could go to college. And her daughter went to Western Michigan University and did very, very well. And her daughter needed to drive to go to college. Sahida helped her get a driver's license, which was forbidden in her tribe. And her daughter died in a car accident. And so the tribal elders had decided that it was Sahida's fault that the girl had died because she should have never gone to college. She should have never been given a driver's license. She should have simply been sent back to Pakistan. And so we knew that if Sahida ever set foot on the ground in Pakistan, there was a very real chance that she would be arrested and executed. That was all I needed to say, yeah, she's staying with us. And that began a long journey. She lived in my office for three years. She never set foot outside of that church. We had to have doctors come into the church to treat her. And uh, if she had set foot outside of that church, she very well could have been arrested and deported. I checked in with immigration. I told them exactly where she was. I checked in with the IRS and made sure that uh, her taxes were paid. You really don't want to mess with the IRS. I mean, they don't, they don't have any qualms, right? And she lived with us and she told me a lot of stories. Now, Sahida was a Muslim. She was one of the most devout people I've ever met in my life. She prayed five times a day and she would get up in the middle of the night and walk through the church, and at two o'clock in the morning, she would use her prayer beads and she would say a prayer for every single member of that church. And she was in her 70s doing this. It took her an hour and a half. And I got to learn a lot about uh, Islam and religion through her. But one of the things that I learned was that Islam has a lot of the same issues that Christianity has. She had lived in Pakistan until she was a teenager and had to flee. 
And once, when she was staying at a relative's house as a teenage girl, she was about 14 years old, there was a group of people who had wandered through her village. And being the kind person that she was, she went out and greeted them, and they said that they were thirsty. She went and she got some cups, and filled them with water from their well, and brought all of the cups out on a tray and gave them something to eat and something to drink. And they thanked her, and then she went home. When the elders came back from the market and they found out what she'd done, she was beaten, and the cups that she had used to serve these people were smashed and thrown into the garbage because the group of people that she had given water to were Christians. They were relatively unknown in that part of the world. She'd certainly never heard of Christians. And she was punished because Christians were ritually impure. And she told me that many times living in America, she'd thought about that story because of how she'd been treated for being a Muslim in a Christian community. And she always remembered to be patient. And she knew that if she was patient, Allah would take one of these Christians and make of them a helper. And that's how she viewed our church, as a place of help and support. Patience. That one act when she was a teenager, all the way through her life to her 70s, she was waiting on God to make that connection. She taught me a lot about Islam. She taught me that in Islam they have a story about uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. That when Mary was pregnant with Jesus, she stayed in a special temple with a priest named Zechariah. Allah gave her food to eat. She felt like her connection to Mary grew stronger while she was living in our church, a church that provided her with food and places to eat. She didn't go without, but she knew want in her life. And she taught me patience. When she was finally given a letter of reprieve, she went out, she purchased a small home using some savings that she had. The church helped her out, and she continues to live there to, to this day. She's known as Auntie Sahida because she provides uh, uh, foster care to orphan refugees. It's not just that Sahida is a smart Pakistani grandmother. She speaks six languages. She's lived in America for a long time. She knows how to take an eight-year-old Syrian orphan, turn them into an 18-year-old functioning American. Now, that's her purpose in life, is to help raise these children. 22 of them she has raised to adulthood. That's why she's known in that community as Auntie Sahida, because she's an auntie to all of these orphan children. Well, okay. Is she the woman at the well? Is she the Samaritan outsider? Or am I? Or are we all? Patience. There was an expectation of that Samaritan woman. An expectation that her purpose in life was to be a wife. She'd been married many times. She finally was with a man who wasn't her husband. Apparently, it was a big enough deal that Jesus brought it up. 
she brought it up as well. But perhaps, I think, her purpose in life had nothing to do with that. Her purpose in life was to be the first preacher to the Samaritans. This woman waiting all of her life for something to happen. And there it was at the well. She went to the Samaritans. She preached. They came. They believed. That takes patience. What was her purpose? To praise Jesus Christ. She had to wait a while for it to happen. One of our addictions here in the U.S. is to believe that if we're not doing something huge with our life right now, we're doing it wrong. The reality is that it may be that one of the most important things I ever did with my life was to have that conversation with that one church about immigration. It may be that the most important thing I ever did with my life was to pick up the phone when that lawyer called, told me about this woman. The patience that you have to have to wait for that moment when God is going to use you for the purpose to which God ordained your life. It might not be the whole thing. It might just be one phone call. Do we have that kind of patience? Well, I'm not sure that I have it all the time. But here's what I know. Our tradition, our United Church of Christ, has in its history a lot of great preachers and takes as one of its mottos that we believe there is still yet more light and truth to break forth from God's holy word. I adapt that because I believe that there is yet more light and truth to break forth from your life. I don't know if you have experienced something like that or if you're still waiting, but what I do know is like that woman at the well, we are not only called to be a people of service and action, we're called to be a people of patience. Patience. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. And we may not have accomplished all of the things that we thought we would have by this point in our lives, but we can know with great certainty that we are where God wants us to be. And if we have a little bit of patience, we trust that God's faithful. We continue to renew our minds and commit ourselves to this religious practice that we have, that there is yet more light to break forth from our lives. Our Auntie Sahida, she was in her 70s when she changed my world. I pray that I have such an opportunity when I get to be her age. And all of us have so many gifts and so much grace within us if we just have the patience to wait for that light, that little bit of light to break forth. Then that's how God will use us to help fix the world. Amen? Amen.